1: Thank you, everyone, for joining us here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, Obviously, we just heard some really excellent remarks from Chairman Yoho. Um, I wanted to... Uh, thank you for coming here today. I'm Olivia Enos. I'm a policy analyst here at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, where I focus primarily on human rights issues. And it is my pleasure to introduce all of the speakers to you today. Um, before I start, I wanted to say, you know, Jeff's book here, Asia's Quest for Balance, um, is in fact available for purchase. And it is an actually very good deal today because you can get it for $40 here or at Amazon for $80, so uh, 50% off. So um, if you are interested in purchasing it, it'll be available in the lobby, um, and we can take card cash, etc. But I think uh, this is definitely a labor of love. Hours went into this book, and this is the second book that Jeff has published, um, and of many that he's contributed to. So I'll go ahead and introduce um, Jeff Smith. He's a research fellow here in the Asian Studies Center focusing on South Asia. In addition to his new book, Asia's Quest for Balance, Smith is also the author of Cold Peace, China-India Rivalry in the 21st Century. And he's contributed to a half dozen other books on Asian security, including China Steps Out, Beijing's major power engagement with the developing world, published this February by Rutledge. His commentary has been featured in numerous publications, including Foreign Affairs, The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The New York Times, and Foreign Policy, among many others. Um, Now I'd like to introduce Prashanth, um, also a friend of mine. Prashanth Parameswaran is senior editor at The Diplomat based in Washington, D.C., where he writes primarily on Southeast Asia, Asian security affairs, and U.S. foreign policy in Asia-Pacific. He is also a Ph.D. candidate at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. An ASEAN citizen who grew up in Malaysia, Singapore, and the Philippines before moving to the United States, Prashant previously worked on Asian affairs at several think tanks, including the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, next, I'd like to introduce Hunter Marston. Um, Hunter and I go actually way back. Um, Hunter is a senior research assistant at the Brookings Institution. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, and Foreign Policy, among others. And also, I'm adding to his bio, he's recently married, which is very exciting. Thank you. Um, and then Sylvia Mishra is a Herbert Scoville, Jr. fellow at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, where her research focuses on nuclear nonproliferation Treaty, South Asian security, and emerging and disruptive technologies. Mishra was also a visiting fellow at the James Martin Center on Nonproliferation Studies and a Nuclear Scholar Initiative Fellow at CSIS. Prior to that, Mishra worked for the Observer Research Foundation in Delhi. Um, with that, please join me in welcoming all of our speakers.
2: Thanks, Olivia, and uh, thank you to Chairman Yoho for his remarks uh, before this presentation. They were very robust. As I mentioned out there, we probably could have a full panel discussion uh, just on on the chairman's remarks, but we are here today to talk about uh, this new book, Asia's Quest for Balance. And um, I first must, must get out of the way a special thanks to the two foundations that funded uh, this project, the Smith Richardson Foundation and the Veal Foundation. Also a special thanks, of course, to the Heritage Foundation, but also to the American Foreign Policy Council, uh, where I worked before joining Heritage last year, and where I did uh, about half of the work on this book project. I also want to give a very big thanks to the contributing authors for this volume. This is a hybrid authored, edited volume. I have three of them here today. There were 11 in total. Um, Rory Medcalf, who wrote the Australia chapter. Uh, Tetsuo Kotani for the Japan chapter. Uh, Prashant did uh, Malaysia. Hunter uh, was a co-author for the Singapore chapter with Joseph Liao. Uh, Sylvia and Raja Mohan co-authored the India chapter. Uh, Jay uh, Batong Bakal did the Philippines chapter. Uh, Elliot Brennan for Burma and uh, Ha Antoine was Vietnam. These are very meaty uh very substantive chapters um, they i I really encourage you i say come for the these these contributing author chapters and stay for them. They really are in many ways the meat of this book, and anyone interested in China's key bilateral relationships in the region, but also how the geopolitical map is changing, I strongly encourage you to sort of take a deep dive here. Uh, this isn't a book that can sort of easily be summed up in, in one line or one sentence. I think it's very rich in material for those who are interested in how the landscape is changing. I wish we had had other uh, co-authors, contributing authors join us. It simply wasn't tenable to fly out 11 people for this event from different parts of the world. But I'm very happy to have these three here with us today. They do represent a good cross-section in the sense that we have representatives talking about ASEAN chapters, but also India, uh, a key member of the Quad. So with that said... Uh, I did give one book talk in India. Uh, the book came out a few weeks ago. I was in India at the time, and the Observer Research Foundation hosted me for a talk, and I tried to sort of – I thought maybe I can summarize every major point I made in the book and try and condense it all together, and that was a, a failure. It was I tried to do too much, so I thought for this talk maybe uh, we keep it a little simpler and and focus on a few key points. And then we can hear, uh, from, from our, our authors, contributing authors, how things look from the perspective of their countries. And then we can circle back, uh, and do some Q&A. So the couple of points I'd like to, to review here, this is a book about balancing. So I think it's important that we ask, what is balancing? Why does it matter? Are Asian countries, Indo-Pacific countries balancing? How much? and what does it mean for the US? And also what could change those the calculus? How how could the balancing landscape change in the future? So, without delving too much in into the sort of deep theory of it, balancing I think at a basic level is a fairly intuitive concept in international relations you have a fast-rising or a powerful country, uh, and this more pronounced when the country rises fast and the more powerful it is, but it causes a reaction among its neighbors and peers. And theory says that they're likely to do one of two things, or some combination of the two, either balancing or bandwagoning. So we have a powerful new country, we either try and befriend it, uh, which would be bandwagoning, Or we try and take steps to protect ourselves, which would be balancing. And you do that through internal balancing, strengthening your military capabilities, or external balancing, essentially making friends with other like-minded countries. You do this in the hopes of mitigating aggression or coercion. The realist theory of school, which really promotes this, this idea of balancing, say that generally states will prefer balancing over bandwagoning, that they will they generally prefer to take steps to protect themselves rather than trying to form a friendship with this new country. Why? Well, part of the reason is because there's no international force with a monopoly on the use of force. There's no policeman. There's no law and order. The international order is still the Wild West. So if I try and befriend another country, there's no higher power to protect me if something changes. So I need to take steps to protect myself. Another reason is because intentions are impossible to discern and subject to change. So this powerful country may seem friendly today, but what's to prevent it from changing its mind tomorrow and taking my territory? And since there is no higher power to protect me, I must take steps to protect myself. And another reason they balance is because they t- countries tend to be jealous of their sovereignty and tend not to want to be dominated by other countries. So if they have a choice to be self-sufficient and independent, they would rather do that than be a vassal state of another country. So balancing is generally preferred. It's not always the case. And I think the United States presents a good example of a very powerful country that rose very quickly in the 20th century that did not have a lot of states saying, We need to get together and resist the United States. We need to fight back. We need to form a coalition against America. Um, Certainly not the many Indo-Pacific countries that we're examining today. But it is preferred. So why does this balancing equation matter at all? Why are we even examining this? Well, I think China's rise has as of late, been framed a bit too much in a, in, a, in a dichotomous framework, a U.S.-China rivalry. And that's really all that matters. Everyone else is on the sidelines watching. Uh, I just don't believe that's the case. And India, I think, is the most prominent example of a country that is already reshaping the landscape and the geopolitical balance of power, but is certainly poised to do so even more in the years ahead. Uh, by mid-century, China's working age population will fall by 25%. India's will grow by 19%. Um, the sort of demographic and economic and even military trends suggest India will reach near parity, if not surpass China, by mid-century. Indonesia is expected to be the fourth or eighth largest economy in the world by mid-century, depending on what measurement you use. Vietnam and the Philippines are expected to grow faster than any two other middle-income countries uh, over the next 20 years, joining the top 20 economies in the world. Australia and Japan, two advanced, powerful, rich countries with strong militaries, are going to remain very relevant. Um, So... I don't think we're witnessing a a unipolar Chinese moment. I don't even think we're witnessing a bipolar world. I think this is very much a multipolar world we're joining with multiple power centers. So it matters what China's neighbors, what India, what Japan, what ASEAN does, because where they're positioned will change the course of China's rise and any U.S.-China rivalry. So... To summarize a lot of work in a, in a, in a very short and quick uh, answer here, is the Indo-Pacific balancing, our country's balancing? And the answer is yes, but it's complicated. On a macro level, defense spending is rising across the region. In fact, it's rising more quickly in Asia and the Indo-Pacific than almost any other region of the world. That's one indicator. The pace of new partnerships, new uh, joint military exercises, intelligence sharing agreements, signs of external balancing has been accelerating, particularly among the quad, US, Japan, India, um, and Australia. Many states are moving closer to the US in a mil- from a military sense, and military perspective. But states are balancing at very different intensities and toward very different objectives so it's not black and white it's not a uniform picture it's very gray and overall i think you might say that the balancing is happening less than realist theory might have expected than 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 logic might have suggested than historic precedent might have suggested If you look about, if you look around the Indo-Pacific, you see a lot of engagement with China, including from the U.S., from Australia, from the Quad. China is the largest trading partner of most of these countries. Um, Certainly, many smaller countries in China's periphery are doing everything they can to take advantage of China's uh, economic growth. So you see a lot of engagement, and this book, in some ways, is about how countries don't want to take sides, some of them. It's about the limitations of balancing. And it's about this underbalancing that we're seeing. And I have a couple uh, assumptions about sort of why that may be happening. Um, On one hand, I think regional countries are free-riding off the United States. Why would we risk provoking China and assuming real costs when the United States is securing our uh, it's guaranteeing our security for us. It's the free rider dilemma. Uh, and it poses a challenge for U.S. Uh, lawmakers and policymakers. We want to reassure our regional partners, but we don't want them to be so complacent that they don't take responsibility for their own defense. I think uh, the culture uh, among ASEAN and others is one of that favors non-confrontation we don't want to uh, be seen as provocative as confrontational toward china as balancing as choosing sides we would much prefer to stay neutral to extract maximum benefits from all sides to keep a relative balance among the powers i think this has contributed to to some underbalancing i think globalization and economic interdependence you know a lot of these theories about state behavior and balancing draw from the 20th century 19th century and earlier where economic interdependence and globalization weren't as significant of factors, when containment strategies were viable. I think the fact that we're so intimately tied to the Chinese economy, so many countries are, changes uh, the calculation about how can you respond to anxiety about a country like China and its rise. And there are some others, um, and I, I, you know, I do have maybe a few conclusions I'd like to draw out. But I think at this time, maybe I, I can turn it over to some of our contributing authors, and we can sort of get a window into three of these countries, three of these important countries, and how their relationship with China has developed over the past decade, and where they sort of fit on this sort of balancing spectrum. So uh, maybe we could go in order here and start with uh, Prashant and. Talk about Malaysia.
3: Sure. Thank you. Um, yep. make sure this is on. Okay, great. <clears throat> Thanks a lot, uh, Jeff. Um, I think you you did a really good job of bringing together the main the- key themes of uh, of the book, and I want to commend Jeff again for. I mean, we did the contributing chapters, but the and if you buy the book, which I highly encourage you to do. Um, the introductory chapters, there are several chapters that bring to fore a lot of these chapters together. And I think in the context of the conversation that we're having, whether it's U.S.-China rivalry, the risk of the so-called new Cold War, um, the Indo-Pacific, what we're really seeing in various capitals is really a cross-country conversation about balancing, about power, about strategies. And so I think while we each have our own countries, um, one of the things that was really beneficial about this book was all of us getting together and having a discussion about uh, some of those strategies and how these things compare and contrast, so I'm glad we're doing this event today. Um, so I guess what I'll do maybe is to to zoom out a little bit before focusing on Malaysia and, and sort of talk about you know what is Southeast Asia's contribu- contribution to this whole balancing debate with China and the United States, and then I'll talk a little bit about Malaysia's approach to the situation and then say a little bit, considering that I'm sure some of you would be interested to hear about the new government in Malaysia and where it's going to move forward, considering that when we when we wrote the chapters, all of us, um, a lot of the trends that we're seeing today weren't that prevalent, or certain, certainly there were some significant changes from when we were writing them. So I guess first, some, some basic sort of indicators about why Southeast Asia is important, including Malaysia, with this conversation about U.S.-China relations in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, Southeast Asia has always been key to competition and transition between various powers. If you look at the key transitions that have happened in the last you know, few decades and even maybe a century, if you look at the transition between the United States and the United Kingdom, the handoff uh, from the United Kingdom to the United States with respect to power transition happened with Southeast Asia in mind significantly. If you look at Japan and the role that it played um, up to relating up to World War II, Southeast Asia was an extremely important place where the Japanese got their economic predominance. And if you look at the US-Soviet competition during the Cold War, um, you know, one of the, the key conflicts obviously was the Vietnam War, but even beyond that, Southeast Asia was a key locus of competition between those two powers. And I suspect, you know, now we're having this conversation about the United States and China. Um, and the Indo-Pacific, this will be another area where Southeast Asia, I think, has a strong voice to play. And that's a, that matters because Southeast Asia today, which is very different from where Southeast Asia was in these few decades, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a region of significant weight. 600 million people, you look at the projections, fourth largest economy by 2050, if the linear projections hold. Strategic locations, uh, Strait of Malacca, South China Sea, among other uh, locations of strategic significance, the locus of the Association of Southeast Asian Asian Nations, which is, if you're talking about the rules-based order and laws and norms, to the extent that you have them in Southeast Asia and the Asia-Pacific, that's kind of the locus for for that debate. What's Malaysia's role in this uh, conversation? Malaysia, whether it's with respect to the United States or China, is a significant country for both major powers. It's the second uh, largest trading partner uh, for China now within ASEAN, and it's also the second largest trading partner for the United States within ASEAN as well. On security, Malaysia is a claimant country in the South China Sea disputes. Um, It's also important for the United States in a whole range of other priorities, whether it's counterterrorism, countering the Islamic State, other related groups, piracy, transnational crimes. Malaysia is up there in all these categories. And diplomatically and politically, Malaysia was one of the founding members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, always a big believer in diplomacy, whether it's regionally or globally. So it's always going to have a key voice on the table with respect to the shaping of the regional order, which is important to both China and the United States. So what's Malaysia's approach to U.S.-China relations and U.S. and China independently been over the past uh, few decades? I would say the the approach that I characterize in the chapter is uh, balanced hedging. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, it's not just a a way for me to hedge when I'm making the argument, but um, it's two components. One is this conception of broad engagement. So Malaysian policymakers believe significantly up to this day that no matter how much trouble or tensions there are in a relationship, it's always better to engage a country because you may be able to change their calculations. And, you know, we can talk more about how naive that is or how wise that is, but that's certainly something that has been quite consistent in Malaysian foreign policy thinking. And that broad engagement is balanced by this sort of concept of limited balancing, which is a recognition that Malaysia, and Jeff alluded to this, you know, why is there underbalancing? Malaysia is certainly a culprit on underbalancing. There's several reasons for that at the domestic level. One of them is Malaysia's military capabilities are not that significant. And you'll find that with several of these Southeast Asian states. And so if you're asking Malaysia to build up significant military capabilities against China, that's just not something it can do. Um, And so what you'll find is that it will form linkages and relationships with a wider variety of states, with the United States, with Japan, with Australia, with other countries, in in the hope that these countries may help in a contingency, but also in the hope that these countries will help Malaysia strengthen its own military capabilities. So that's kind of the broad approach. But I also do think, you know, to take a more historical perspective, there's been some evolution in how Malaysia has looked at the United States and China. Malaysia began in in, in the 1950s looking at this from the perspective of, at the time, China was the main threat in Southeast Asia and the Asia-Pacific. It was a communist regime. Malaysia was fighting communists within the country that was undermining the government. And so it was a very clear anti-communist struggle. And Malaysia was aligned with the Western camp. But then you had the 1970s, when uh, the United States, following the Nixon doctrine, um, there was a sense that the United States was retrenching from Asia, even though under the Nixon administration there were attempts to balance that out. And Malaysia very quickly uh, was the first country within ASEAN to normalize relations with China. Um, And there was a decision by the political leadership at the time that if the tide is shifting, Malaysia should be at the forefront of making sure that it changes its relationship. So Malaysia has always been very quick to change when it senses that that the situation is changing and it needs to adapt. And then in the 1990s, when you saw the advent of the Asian financial crisis and the post-Cold War context, you again saw Malaysia under the former Prime Minister, who has now come back to be Prime Minister, Mahathir Mohamad, talk about the fact that now that the Cold War is over, maybe we should have an Asia for Asians. You know, there's no need for the United for Malaysia to side with either the United States or China or any other power, um, but that Asians together should try to shape their own destiny. So you can sense, I mean, there's various conceptions that Malaysia has had over just the past few decades. The key question, which I try to get at in the chapter, is where's that debate today? And I'm, I'm afraid we don't have a lot of certainty about where that is today. And with this new government, I think there's even more uncertainty. So from the 2010s to 2020s uh, period, you know what have been the, the driving factors? I think Malaysia's conception of balance hedging has been tested significantly. It's been stress tested. It's been stress tested primarily by the main variable is the change in Chinese behavior. Um, the turning point, I would say, it came in about 2015 when you had Uh, The Chinese actively position uh, a vessel in Malaysia's own uh, waters in the South China Sea. Um, And this was a very visible demonstration of Chinese military power against Malaysia. Um, It got a lot of press uh, in Malaysia at the time. Um, And that raised questions about how China was threatening Malaysia's core interests China had, obviously the, the incursions that the Chinese had into Malaysian waters had continued years before, but this was a very visible demonstration of Chinese strength. And then the Chinese ambassador to Malaysia that same year um, went to Pataling Street, which is a place where um, it's a very popular destination, even for some tourists to, to frequent. Um, and there, were, uh, there was an event uh, over there, and the Chinese ambassador said something to the effect of, you know, if there's any threat to the ethnic Chinese in Malaysia, um, you know, China will not be afraid to intervene or do something about that. And that was seen in, in Malaysia as a very sort of core demonstration again of what the Chinese were capable of doing. And the third and final one was um, the news that broke about the Chinese involvement in the 1MDB corruption scandal that involved the former Prime Minister of Malaysia. There was a sense that that compromised. Uh, Malaysia's uh, economic <coughs> sovereignty. So it's been stress tested, but where is Malaysia today? I would say that following Jeff's conception and discussion of underbalancing, Mal- Malaysia's underbalanced significantly since then. You've seen Malaysia take a active role to try to make sure that it's protecting itself against too much Chinese involvement, but we've also seen other developments. I mean, Malaysia has bought warships from China Malaysia started exercises, uh, military exercises with China in 2015. So there is this continued conception that Malaysia's destiny, in spite of what the Chinese may do, always rests in this mixture of engagement and balancing and I think a little bit of reluctance to move forward. I'll say maybe just two quick things on the new government and what that (coughs) means. There's been a lot of rhetoric about Malaysia being at the forefront of some sort of anti-Chinese coalition, whether it's on the South China Sea or the One Belt, One Road initiative, with the coming to the fore of the new prime minister, I would just say very very shortly, and we can discuss in the Q&A if you'd like, I mean, be very careful about what Malaysia says and what Malaysia does. Um, the rhetoric uh, from the current prime minister is very similar to the rhetoric that we've heard before, where Malaysia talks a very loud game, but if you look at some of Malaysia's capabilities – you look at the new budget that came out. Malaysia cut its defense spending by 10%. You look at the reality on One Belt, One Road in the conversation as opposed to the rhetoric. Malaysia hasn't canceled the One Belt, One Road projects. It's reviewed them. It's asked the Chinese for better conditions. But it's using, in similar terms as it's done before, a conversation about a starting position against China to renegotiate and get a better deal for itself, which is very different from balancing directly against China or engaging in some kind of containment or pro-U.S. coalition. So I'll kind of end there and uh, look forward to your questions and other thoughts as well. Thanks.
4: Thank you. Hi. uh, Thank you. Um, I want to reiterate Prashant's thanks and gratitude to uh, Jeff for his excellent stewardship over this book project. It was a pleasure to work on uh, with him. And uh, his excellent uh, feedback definitely enriched my own chapter. Um, I also want to thank my co-author Joseph Lowe, who's not here. He uh, is really the brains behind um, the Singapore strategic thinking uh, in this chapter, um, but it was a pleasure to uh, co-author with him. So I thought I would sort of run through uh, the components of my chapter, starting with the state of debate regarding China, uh, the key drivers of Singapore's foreign policy, views of the United States, and balancing initiatives and coalitions. Um, so first of all, our main argument tries to frame um, Singapore's conception of balancing not in terms of balancing versus engagement per se, or balancing versus bandwagoning, but a small b balancing with an emphasis on the balance of power in Southeast Asia in the Indo-Pacific region. Singapore is a big subscriber to the realist school of thought in international relations. Since its independence in 1965, um, it found itself as a small city-state, and uh, it's what Billahari Kausika, an ambassador at large, refers to as the improbable state. Uh, Singapore um, has both good relations with China and the United States and actively tries to balance both of those. Um, Jeff quotes the late elder statesman in his book, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who said in 2009, the size of China makes it impossible for the rest of Asia to match it in weight and capacity. So we need America to strike a balance. And I think that still generally holds true for how Singapore views the United States' role in the region. Um, For example, Singapore uh, will balance uh, good relations with China and the United States by uh, hosting high-level summits with each in quick succession. So in November 2015, Singapore hosted Xi Jinping to meet with uh, Taiwan's former president, Ma Ying-jeou, had a state-level visit with uh, Xi. And then just one month later, um, Singapore's Prime Minister Li traveled to the United States um, in December um, to sign the Enhanced Defense Coopera- uh, Cooperation Agreement. In Singapore, uh, more than 70% of the population is ethnically Chinese, and that's been a point of contention in Singapore's history. Singapore has been wary of China's uh, calls historically to mobilize ethnic Chinese in the country. Singapore was one of the later uh, nations to establish di- diplomatic relations with China in 1990, um, and yet today most Singaporeans have a positive view of China. Uh, one poll we cite in our chapter uh, says 81% of Singaporeans have a positive view of China and 76% view um, China's view in, uh, impact on the region in a positive manner. Um, in fact, uh, just this week, uh, Prime Minister Li said at a dinner hosting Chinese Premier Li Keqiang Singapore and China are like-minded partners in many areas, even though we have different circumstances and constraints. Uh, China has been Singapore's largest trading partner since 2014. Singapore joined the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank in 2015, and in 2018 it signed a deal to enhance cooperation on the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. Singapore perceives China's more provocative external posture, uh, as the United States would certainly characterize it today, as natural in the sense that a rising power is uh, going to stake out larger claims in the region. Um, Lee Kuan Yew had had repeatedly uh, iterated this thinking uh, to the effect of of why not? You know, if, if China will seek to be number one in wealth, its power will grow. It will naturally stake larger claims in the region. Um, so, recent actions have not necessarily transformed Singapore's relationship with the United States or driven it to any firm balancing against China, so much as underscored the status quo and its desire to hedge and balance relations with both powers. So, the key drivers of Singapore's foreign policy Singapore's priorities are political stability at home. Uh, open commerce, it's heavily dependent on foreign trade for its um, strong economy, and its desire for enduring enduring U.S. security presence in the region and freedom of navigation. Um, Chinese activities that do worry Singapore would include militarization in the South China Sea, which could uh, impinge upon freedom of navigation and that trade, which I said is so crucial a component to Singapore's economy. Um, Singapore is also the, has been for the last three years the China-Asean country coordinator, which is an important role in liaising between China and ASEAN. Um, so Singapore was put in the awkward position in April 2016 when Beijing announced a deal with several small countries within ASEAN to not allow the South China Sea dispute to mar China's relations with ASEAN. Uh, this took Singapore by surprise and has exposed a little bit of awkwardness in the Singapore-China relationship. Equally, in late 2016, Hong Kong impounded nine of Singapore's military vehicles on their way back from training exercises in Taiwan, which was a dramatic uh, diplomatic spat. Um, Following that, in May of the following year, just last year, Singapore was not invited to an opening Belt and Road Forum. Um, Certain Chinese thinkers perceive Singapore as relying too much on the U.S. security presence in the region and only trying to benefit from Belt and Road economically. Um, Moreover, last year in August, the National University of Singapore Professor Huang Jing was expelled from the country on charges of being a foreign agent working with China. So as I said, the uh, ethnic Chinese and Chinese influence in the country are certainly perceived with a great deal of wariness. Um, Singapore has uh, indicated strong internal and external balancing in a way. Singapore is the largest defense spender in Southeast Asia. From uh, 2008 to 2012, Singapore was the fifth largest weapons importer in the world. It has consistently spent around 3% of its budget on defense. Singapore also has a 950,000 active uh, military member army. That's over three times the size of the Philippines army and 119 aircraft, which is larger than Thailand and Malaysia. Externally, Singapore um, has been an important uh, security partner with the United States and other countries in the region. In 1990, Singapore offered to host U.S. naval forces um, amid the Philippine Senate's vote to oust U.S. troops from Subic Bay. In 1998, an addendum to the Memorandum of Understanding signed so that U.S. military vessels, including deep draft vessels, could also stop at the new Changi Naval Base in Singapore. Furthermore, Singapore signed a strategic framework agreement with the United States in 2005 and a strategic partnership in 2012, remarking on their shared interest in freedom of navigation and respect for international law. Four months later, um, as I said, Singapore is an is a adept balancer um, and hedger. It signed an agreement with China to expand defense cooperation. So it's maintained relations with China on the security front at the same time as security relations have advanced with the United States. In 2015, the U.S. announced a $130 million deal to upgrade Singapore's F-16 fleet. And in December 2015, as I mentioned, the United States and Singapore signed an enhanced defense cooperation agreement. And Singapore soon after that announced it would host the U.S. P-8 Poseidon surveillance planes um, for regional um, maritime domain awareness and other purposes. In April 2017, last year, the USS Carl Vinson aircraft carrier and two warships visited Singapore just two weeks after conducting Pacific uh, naval exercises with the Japanese and Korean navies under the Trump administration Mattis has visited Singapore three times to the best of my knowledge uh, the first to speak at shangri-la dialogue in 2017 and again this year and the third uh, at the ASEAN Defense ministers meeting in October this year in April 2017 um, Singapore's defense minister visited D.C., and a joint statement followed the U.S. and Singapore reaffirming strong defense relations and commitment to stability in the Indo-Pacific. Singapore also maintains robust defense and security relations with India, Australia, Vietnam, and even Taiwan, which is unique in that Singapore is the only country in Southeast Asia to conduct military exercises with Taiwan. Um, The third part of the chapter would be the views of the United States— uh, the United States and Singapore, their views generally align in the interests of free trade, freedom of navigation, and the status quo balance of power in Asia. Singapore, as I said, is an important non-allied partner for the United States. The United States is Singapore's largest source of foreign direct investment, cumulatively totaling $243 billion in 2015, since the free trade agreement between the United States and Singapore came into effect in 2004, bilateral trade has grown by more than 50%, and totaled over 68 billion in 2016. Uh, Prime Minister Lee has met with President Trump three times on the sidelines of the G20 in Germany last year, and again in October on an official state visit, the first hosted by the Trump administration in D.C. That, that, that includes the whole White House dinner and everything. Um, to be technical. The uh, third meeting was in Singapore in June during the Trump-Kim summit. Uh, That's Trump and Kim Jong-un, that is. Um, And finally, balancing initiatives. Uh, Singapore, as I said, is not going to join any outright balancing uh, coalition against China, but it's uh, certainly participated in uh, regional multilateral security initiatives. Um, It has a number of joint uh, military exercises with, with the United States as well, some going on uh, three decades, including Exercise Tiger Bomb and Exercise Commando Sling, as well as Carrot, the Cooperation afloat and Readiness Training bilateral naval exercises. Um, I mentioned the Trump-Lee meeting in uh, D.C. in October last year. Uh, the two reiterated their support for ASEAN centrality, freedom of navigation, and concern about um, events in the South China Sea. So interests and views seem to be quite aligned. Um, Singapore also represents a very important hub for maritime domain awareness uh, in Southeast Asia. The United States um, relies heavily on the Changi Naval Base for its uh, Navy presence and repairs, as well as the Information Fusion Center for maritime domain awareness and surveillance uh, over the South China Sea and in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. Um, as I said, Singapore and India have uh, enhanced defense ties. Next week, the annual Singapore-India Maritime Bilateral Exercise, SIMBEX, will feature 30 air, sea, and underwater vessels in its 25th year in the Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea. And as I mentioned, Singapore and Australia defense cooperation are robust as well. Australia as well as India both hold uh, Singapore Air Force training uh, over their larger territories, given Singapore is relatively limited and uh, spatial constraints. Um, as I mentioned, Singapore is a little reticent uh, about joining any Quad or balancing coalition against uh, being perceived as against China. Foreign Minister Vivian Balakrishnan said in May that Singapore is not signing up to the Quad or free, free and open Indo-Pacific until it sees more detail about how the U.S. vision incorporates ASEAN into <coughs> regional strategy. Uh, an excellent report by Hung Tu at the uh, Asia Society Policy Institute recently noted Singapore's high degree, and surprising to me, its a high degree of skepticism towards the Quad initiative involving India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. To sum up, and returning to our central argument in the chapter, I think it's useful to think not in terms of big B balancing here, uh, but in terms of small b balancing in the emphasis on balance of power in Asia, which Singapore strives to maintain. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Jeff, for uh, having me. And also it was great working uh, with you on the book project. I also want to thank uh, my... Uh, co-author Dr. C. Mohan, As we know, he's uh, the doyen on India's strategic uh, thinking, so it was really uh, great working uh, with him and you on the book project. And even though we've heard like some really excellent remarks from my fellow panelists, however, uh, the book is going to be the go-to book for Indo-Pacific uh, studies, so I would encourage all of you to uh, buy the book and read it. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, India-China relations. And, uh, and as we know, it is a deeply complex uh, relationship. It is uh, It has characteristics of uh, both uh, competition, cooperation, and also uh, strategic rivalry. But uh, taking a step back, it is important to underscore that uh, when India and China uh, fought a limited war in the Himalayas in 1962, Bilateral relations remained strained and fraught for almost two and a half decades after that. But after the Cold War, as India adjusted to the new geopolitical realities and, and um, engaged with me all the major powers, including uh, China, uh, there was a sense of optimism uh, of uh, India-China relationship. The Indian strategic uh, policy community were convinced that it would bode and uh, do well for India and its economic development if India is able to uh, pursue bilateral uh, diplomatic and economic cooperation with uh, China. And uh, this entire process were uh, kept divorced from the enduring border dispute that was still uh, looming large in the backdrop of uh, bilateral ties. however, within a decade of the 2000s, the positive trends in India China relationship uh, seemed uh, very uh, fleeting um, and we have to understand that India China is India's second uh, f- the uh, largest trading partner. And in China is the second largest economy. Uh, But again, even on the realm of economic cooperation between uh, India and China, uh, India faces a huge uh, trade deficit. Bilateral economic ties uh, is marked at 84 billion as of uh, 2017. However, the trade deficit as of 2017, is $52 which is in Chinese favor. So again, in terms of economic partnership, we understand that there are limits to what India and uh, China can achieve. Uh, However, uh, it is also important to underscore that India and China cooperates on several multilateral forums um, like BRICS and AIIB, uh, but again, in two thousand and sixteen, there were indicators that a uh, multilateral uh, cooperation on several multilateral forums would again see its limit in two thousand and sixteen. We saw uh, China not uh, backing uh, India to help uh, sponsor a UNSE resolution against pakistan uh, based uh, terrorists, and also in, uh, China has been consistent in denying India. A role and seat in global high tables uh, we uh, we've seen that even with uh, prime minister modi and president Xi jinping 's uh, meeting and a uh, face to face discussion on Ind- the question of india 's NSG membership however uh, in china did not support india 's uh, entry to the nsg membership but so we see while uh there has been a uh, aspects of cooperation. Uh, we also understand that there are limits to that cooperation. But one theme uh, that really runs to uh, through the sinews of this chapter is uh, the growing understanding of Indian uh, policy makers that there is a huge power differential between India's national comprehensive power and that of uh, China. China is uh, spreading its both economic footprints and also military uh, presence dotted across uh, the South, um, South Asia. We've seen uh, China's push uh, westward through the Belt and Road Initiative, and um, China has uh, also... Um, what we see as predatory uh, economics and the entire debt trap uh, which we are seeing in uh, happening in Sri Lanka and in Pakistan uh, with CPEC. So uh, while we understand that with a a rising China and its economic and military power, it would have its presence in South, uh, South Asia. However, At what what cost and at what standard is an important aspect. So, understanding some of these realities that and questions that China's rise and presence in South Asia poses, the uncertainty Indian policymakers have been focused on both uh, what we see as internal balancing and also external balancing. Indian policymakers are convinced that we need to bolster our defense readiness. This, uh, The Indian government, and especially under uh, Prime Minister Modi, we've seen a concerted effort to uh, make in India uh, policy to bolster our defense industrial base. And also India has been uh, looking at partners like Japan to essentially uh, upgrade its infrastructure, uh, the rail and road uh, initiatives in India – and within the Indian hinterlands have, uh, requires a lot of uh, cooperation with uh, the Japanese. So we've seen uh, that being done in uh, South Asia. But uh, to talk about a bit on external balancing, uh, it, is, it is important to note that India wishes to be a leading power in South Asia. And however, even though right now that might uh, be an I meant, uh in Southern Asia and the broader Indo-Pacific. And whilst that might be an aspirational goal, but increasingly we are able to see that India is in a position to uh, essentially shape its outside uh, a security environment. Uh, and when we look at uh, some of the external balancing activities that India has been engaged with, uh, New Delhi has sought to uh, essentially strengthen its uh, multilateral defense activities through both uh, the ASEAN framework and through its own multilateral mechanism. One of the most important uh, factors that we've seen, and especially in the Modi uh, government, is that uh, India uh, has shed its inhibitions to uh, to join multi- uh, trilateral initiatives, we've seen uh, India's trilateral initiative with India, uh, Japan, and Australia, and also India, uh, Japan, and, uh, um, and the United States. The Malabar exercises, which uh, which are like naval uh, exercises between uh, the between the United States and India, starting from 1992, 19- uh, it was uh, upgraded and to include uh, Japan. But one of the most important aspects of uh, India's role in the broader Indo-Pacific is also India's uh, willingness to help uh, shape some of the security environment of the uh, countries in uh, in the Western Pacific. We know when uh, Prime Minister Modi went to Vietnam, he offered a security uh, aid uh, package to uh, Hanoi uh, worth of uh, 500 million, and also there are talks uh, adv- uh, with Vietnam to sell the. Brown Uh, Uh, But the most important aspects, and I uh, do want to reflect on uh, this uh, for a bit, is uh, India's partnership with the United States. In many ways, the United States... uh, is critical to both India's internal and external balancing effort. India's relationship with the United States has been a driving force in the post-Cold War foreign policy, and it has been central to India's economic transformation, and it has also been the linchpin of India's defense uh, capabilities, uh, Uh, the United States have uh, essentially backed India to improve also its international standing. Um, As we know from the recent 2-plus-2 ministerial uh, dialogue, India recently uh, signed the uh, COMCASA, which is the communications compatibility and security agreement. I know it's a mouthful, Uh, but uh, it essentially uh, enabled... uh, Uh, the U.S. to transfer secure communication and data equipments to uh, India. And it also allows the United States to offer real-time data sharing with uh, Indian military over secure channels. So what we are seeing is this deepening of bilateral uh, ties uh, with the United States because of the growing strategic congruence and uh, strategic alignment of interest with the United States in uh, the broader Indo-Pacific I would like to conclude uh, by uh, saying that for India, uh, the challenge has been to manage Chinese rise uh, and its presence in the uh, Southern Asian region. And uh, Most of the Indian foreign policy uh, makers are aware that India will not be able to effectively balance China with just uh, internal balancing or just bolstering its own defense and economy. To do so, India needs to uh, uh, take advantage and leverage uh, its several partnerships with Indo-Pacific countries. Uh, As we see, uh, in 2017, uh, India and uh, China did lock themselves in a a -a 72-a-days border standoff But also, uh, we saw in 2018 the Yuhan Summit, uh, which was essentially uh, a step taken by the leaders of both the countries to redress and uh, temper down some of the enduring challenges. But to say uh, that the scale of differences between India and China remains massive. And to just uh, give uh, you a highlight of uh, where uh, both the countries are, uh, China believes that the the contested border uh, is only of 2000 kilometers whereas india believes that the disputed border between india and china the length is almost 4000 so uh, kilometers so both the countries are unable to look eye to eye on some of these basic uh, differences and therefore there are enduring constraints in bilateral relationship uh, the challenge for India in the next uh, coming decade would be to manage Chinese rise and uh, also to leverage on some of these existing bilateral partnerships with Indo-Pacific countries so as to see that no one country in Indo-Pacific just uh, dominates so that we do not want to see a China-centric Asia.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Sylvia, Hunter, uh, Prashant. Really great presentations, and I think gave a, a great cross-section of, of views on the, the different types of countries that are covered in this study. Uh, just to make one or two kind of points to bring things back around, and then uh, we're happy to field your questions. I can see, looking at the clock, that I grossly miscalculated on planning this event and how, how long it would go for. Um, for any of you that do have to leave, you know it's 1:30, and, and feel free to head on out. I believe we have the room until two. For those of you that that do uh, want to engage in some Q and A, we're here and happy to talk. But to bring things back around briefly, uh, before we do Q and A, um, as this panel showed. Uh, Countries in the Indo-Pacific are balancing at different intensities, and if we want to simplify things, we might say that there is a group of soft balancers, which you would find more predominantly in ASEAN, and then a group of countries that are balancing harder, which would be the Quad, the U.S., India, Australia, uh, and Japan, and even within these groups – Again, they're at different intensities uh, within the soft balancers. Vietnam is is doing much more sort of active balancing measures, I would say, than than Burma, um, and maybe uh, the U.S. is is more active than Australia within the Quad. But I think there is some uh, merit to to breaking them out into these different categories, and the book goes into detail about what distinguishes them. Um, Part of it is about whether or not you're willing to limit engagement. Part of moving toward harder forms of balancing is your threat perception is growing. And engaging with a country like China at a time you think the threat is growing, it becomes counterproductive uh, at some point to continue feeding into what may potentially be a threat. So one, in fact, one metric, one sign of countries uh, adopting harder forms of balancing is beginning to limit engagement for national security reasons, for a fear of empowering a, this potential threat. And you're beginning to see that more now, uh, particularly in the U.S., but elsewhere, much more scrutiny being applied to Chinese investments, Chinese economic activity, China's predatory economic model. Um, so, uh very quickly, just some thoughts on, on the soft balancer side of it. Maybe just read a, a short passage. You know, these ASEAN countries prefer a regional order that's multipolar in nature, one in which the Quad remains actively engaged and serves as a geopolitical and economic counterweight to China's growing power and influence. For ASEAN, encouraging the Quad to assume more active and consistent roles in regional affairs – offers a less provocative means of achieving a relative balance of power than proactively seeking to limit or diminish China's power and influence. Yet ASEAN's willingness to translate their concerns about China into proactive balancing initiatives remains limited. They will continue taking modest steps to strengthen their military capabilities and forge new security partnerships, but will feel constrained by geographic realities and economic imperatives. Some, like Vietnam, may pursue more independent foreign policies and more vigorous balancing initiatives in the years ahead. But absent a major provocation from China that fundamentally alters region-wide threat perceptions, the relative aloofness of Indonesia, Malaysia, and others is likely to endure, ironically reflecting the disposition of their broader publics surprisingly unaware of or disinterested in the geopolitical great game underway. The second point I'd like to make is that it may be helpful to consider balancing as it's unfolded in the Indo-Pacific as coming in two waves. China's peaceful rise hit a bit of a, a, a snag in 2008. Many people agree, for many reasons that are explored in the book, that since 2008 we've seen a more assertive Chinese foreign policy, whether in the South China Sea, the land border with India, more nationalist undertones to its foreign policy initiatives. It's been more assertive. That's been, that's in relative agreement by everyone in the Indo-Pacific. That prompted what I would call sort of a first wave of balancing more conventional, traditional military balancing, more concern about the security aspects of China's rise, about military aggression, Um, balancing in our traditional sense with the ASEAN countries doing it on a sort of softer manner toward institutional balancing, promoting rules and norms, and the Quad sort of taking more conventional military balancing steps. I think over the past two or three years, we've seen a second wave Distant from the traditional military balancing that relates more to fear and concern about infringement on sovereignty and autonomy and the ill effects of China's Belt and Road Initiative. We're not worried about China sending aircraft carriers to our waters and sending tanks through our capitals. We we are worried about the pernicious influence of Chinese interference in our domestic affairs about becoming too beholden to China, about debt traps, about autonomy and sovereignty. And and this is one area where you have seen growing concern, not only among the Quad, and it's been most robust among the Quad, but among ASEAN countries, among African countries, among Latin American countries. There's sort of this second wave of pushback that's coming that may lend itself toward less military balancing, but more sort of economic balancing, more attempts to insulate one's economy from domination. And uh, just to sort of finish this up, uh, as the carrots for those in China's good graces have grown larger, the sticks deployed against countries that displease Beijing are getting sharper and being wielded more freely with each passing year. China's red lines are getting thicker and encasing new issues all the time. The Quad has begun to appeal to ASEAN and capitals further afield to recognize the threat posed not just by Chinese warships and ballistic missiles, but by Chinese debt and dependence. A clear picture has begun to emerge about the costs accompanying a Chinese-led regional order. To date, capitals have proven willing to trade a degree of autonomy for material benefit, but few seem comfortable granting the Chinese Communist Party a veto over their foreign and economic policies. For all the differences between ASEAN, the Quad, and others on the security challenges posed by China's rise, the phenomenon is creating an expanding zone of common ground. Nearly every regional capital hopes to preserve their autonomy and sovereignty in a rules-based order free from Chinese hegemony. With that said, um, those of you left with questions, uh, we're happy to field them. Uh, Maybe we'll start counterclockwise in the back.
3: And this speaks to your uh, soft PowerPoint. Um, we see a lot of states rise in power measured by economic or military terms, but one of the not-so-talked-about areas and one of the same areas that China has taken great advantage of is cultural exchange, whether that be intellectual property theft or education initiatives. How can the U.S. and other powers within the Quad leverage cultural exchange to help balance against China? I'll start. Go ahead. Uh, I, mean, I I mean, think uh, it, it's a good question um, because I think if you look at uh, the Chinese initiatives within ASEAN and Southeast Asia in particular, they actually have paid a lot of attention to cultural exchange and education programs because I think there is a perception that the United States does enjoy a tremendous advantage uh, in that sphere and has enjoyed and I think will continue to enjoy. In terms of what the United States can do, I would actually say the United States is actually doing a pretty good job of that um, already. And I think that has linkages to the appeal of U.S. soft power in general, which I think the Chinese don't enjoy. What I would say, though, is an interesting question 10, 15, 20 years from now is the Chinese do have an advantage in terms of volume. If you look at some of the scholarships and the educational exchanges that they're, they're having and they're promoting, some of those may bear fruit over the course of several years. And there are other Advantages that the Chinese have that the United States doesn't have in terms of these exchanges. So the US educational institutions uh, may be more appealing in terms of their value and education and renown, in terms of how renowned they are. But if you're a student sitting in the Asia Pacific, you know, any country, and you have to think about um, cost of education, you have to think about proximity to your home, that may then lead you to choose a Chinese. institution as opposed to the United States. So I would say there's there's some things that the United States can do, but there's also a case of, and I think Congressman Yoho mentioned this, it's a case of competitive advantage, and the United States actually building up its advantages relative to other countries rather than a like-to-like competition.
4: Yeah, I would just add, uh, traveling around Southeast Asia, a lot of countries I spend time in, uh, including Vietnam and Myanmar, I think the U.S. still enjoys the uh, overwhelming... Um, uh, privilege of, of soft power enduring. Um, you know, younger people in both the, the countries I just mentioned, uh, look at Hollywood, Coca Cola, Pepsi, um, and even the value of American business and the way they do business in these countries being more corporate, uh, social responsibility, um, I think build in our in our favor uh, also the Fulbright University program, uh, the American Centers overseas they do a lot of day to day activities over there that open their doors to the public um, and then finally, I, I made a trip to Taiwan um, this this year and uh, was very interested to learn where Taiwan was trying to capitalize on this sort of soft power competition uh, as small as it is, um, trying to compete with China a bit and draw more students from Southeast Asia. Um, and also relaxing its visa policies for students who graduated and wanted to stay and work or um, ex- expatriates from the Southeast Asian region who are living in Taiwan trying to work there. So I think there, there are other spaces for competition, particularly India, which perhaps you could touch on, um, that uh, still crowd out China a bit in the soft power competition.
5: Um, I think that's a really good question, but I would uh, focus a bit on the digital silk road that uh, china has been uh, in enforcing uh- I recently read a report where uh, which stated that uh, China is helping Zimbabwe with uh, artificial intelligence and um, in that process also uh, collecting massive amounts of uh, Zimbabwean uh, data so i one aspect where I think India and the United States should really deepen its uh bilateral ties is uh, in the digital uh, sector we already have a, a quite a robust uh, cybersecurity framework, but again, like countering uh, some of uh, China's um, uh, policies um, in um, the digital uh, silk road, I think uh, that uh, provides a good... Um, opportunity and window for both India and the United States and other like-minded democracies, uh, especially looking at uh, South Korea, Japan with advanced uh, technologies and economies should uh, play a greater role in countering China's digital uh, Silk Road also. Thanks.
3: Um, So my question, I, I wanted to ask about um, the 76% of people in Singapore who have a favorable favorable view of the rise of China. Um, so my question is um, could you give an assessment on what degree of press freedom there is in Singapore and internet freedom? Because when I see something like that and I'm thinking about geopolitical interests and economic interests, it seems like those two things might prompt the government of Singapore to present a favorable view of ordinary people in Singapore that may or may not be the case? Um,
4: yeah, g- good question, and you're absolutely right. Singapore is uh, hardly a free and open uh, democracy in, in the sense of um, uh, political competition and totally independent media, um, which which uh, we enjoy in this country. Uh, the poll I cited on popularity of, of China and favorable views of China's impact on the region was actually carried out by uh, the National University of Taiwan, Um, So I don't know a whole lot about their methodology. There are a number of Pew surveys that come out from time to time as well, gauging uh, Southeast Asian and Indo-Pacific views of the U.S. and China in light of one another. Um, But I I I would assume that being carried out by the National University of Taiwan, uh, that the poll didn't really – that Singapore's own media and, and politics didn't really factor into the survey results, if I had to guess.
3: I would also just, just add on polling, um, Hunter mentioned Pew polls. Um, if you look at the Pew poll uh, data for Southeast Asian countries, you'd actually be surprised uh, in several of them, to Jeff's point about Indonesia, Malaysia, and some of these other countries, you will find actually quite high favorability ratings, even in Indonesia, which has a, a quite a free press. In fact, some people say too free. Um, and that's partly because um, the advantages that these countries see with respect to China on the economic side outweigh the exposure that they have. So both Malaysia and Indonesia, for example, are Muslim-majority countries. And so it, it, it's not necessarily a reflection of the U.S.-China competition. It may be more a product of if the United States invades Iraq or you know there is a Middle East sort of conflict, these Muslim-majority countries may have a view on that, and then it affects that rather than just concrete U.S.-China competition, Mm. right? So there are these other factors, I think, that play into this. And I I do have to say, I mean, to Jeff's point about free riding and what these governments can do, several of these governments actually tend to emphasize more the good things that happen with China on the economic side, but don't emphasize the good things that they do with the United States on the security side, Uh, sometimes for understandable reasons because they don't want the populations to know too much about that and they think it's sensitive. But as a result, the United States doesn't get the full buy-in or weightage in terms of these polls or popular perceptions.
2: Hmm. That would be one point to add on to that. Uh, I do cover several uh, polls in the book and how regional countries view the U.S. and China, which is declining, which is rising, which would we prefer to have here. Um, and, and there's some really, I think, interesting findings in there. But one point that was mentioned to me by a Singaporean diplomat that I, I found supported by circumstantial evidence, but also also polling data, is that many countries don't, particularly in ASEAN, don't want to pick a side and want to see a balance among the powers. Now, I think if you asked many strategists in the U.S., India, and Japan, they would say, you know, forget a balance. We want the Quad to be stronger than China. We would prefer that we we are the stronger side. I think if you asked some ASEAN countries, they'd say, yeah, you know, we actually would be fine with, with a balance among the two powers. But if it had to be one or the other, if there had to be a predominant power, we would prefer the U.S. We've – this is – U.S. is a known commodity – it's, you know, secured or our, our, it's provided for security and economic prosperity for several decades. China is very much an unknown commodity. Uh Its ambitions are relatively unknown. So if we were somehow forced, we do not want to be present in a Chinese-dominated regional order. But they don't want to be forced to choose, and they're going to do everything they can to avoid making that choice. Would you um, – would you agree with that? Would would my co-authors agree with that?
3: I think so. Um, and I think the, the key question is, to your point about the second wave, um, yeah. it really has, I think, increased the, the focus on the, the key question, which is if it's the United States who, and I think U.S. diplomats, including in the Trump administration, have been very clear, the United States is not trying to make these countries choose. Are some of the things that China is doing – forcing these countries to choose deliberately. Mm. And I think there are some of the view in Southeast Asia where the Chinese are trying to build up so much economic and diplomatic leverage with these Southeast Asian states such that you know ultimately the choice will be made for them mm. uh, in 20, 30, 40 years. The, the influence will be there such that the weightage of South China Sea or things that might lean these countries towards the United States will be outweighed by the factors that are pro-China in that direction.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one last question. Or may- actually, could we group the two together for final questions?
0: Uh, my name is Kami Bhatt, and I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And so you mentioned about uh, uh, the Chinese uh, and exploitative behavior in Pakistan about this CPEC. I just wondered that to what extent India is responsible uh, of pushing Pakistan in the arms of China. For example, India has 700,000 troops in Indian Kashmir. And, you know, P- Army Kashmiri and Pakistani Kashmiri feel very, you know, sensitive about this, that nowhere you ha- in the world you have this civilian pl- uh, versus military concentration in the world like India does. And India has such a, you know, ruthlessly trying to oppress that. So isn't that India responsible pushing China, Pakistan into Chinese arms? Number two, India has like over seventy percent of its military asset against Pakistan, a country that is literally bankrupt. Uh, even its airport have been mortgaged by. Crook like Noah Sharif and uh, Mr. Ten Percent and by doing that, India is pushing further uh, Pakistan into Chinese. Number three, India, you were not even born probably when in India divided Pakistan into two parts. And my other d- part of the question is Dr. Deepak Lal was here. He is probably in the age of your grandfather. He said... That the best thing for India-Pakistan is that India should remove its troops from Pakistani border, uh, you know, and move it to Chinese border. Because Pakistan is not a threat, uh, to India. So, uh, do, do you agree with his logic or what, do, to what extent do you think India could do? Rather to, in order to rebalance, I mean if India behave as a kind of brotherly fashion, I'm sure that you can realign these countries. Pakistan can become friendly with India instead of wasting so many, so much resource uh, resources on defense. And then these two countries, you know, basically we are same people, basically. So why don't you think that India should behave as a in a brotherly manner and you know go with Pakistan rather than trying to crush it? Thanks.
2: Uh, I'm actually going to interject there. Uh, Sylvia, you're welcome to add on to this. Pakistan was not a subject uh, of this book. Uh, We are not going to get into a discussion about Indian troops in Kashmir. It is off the table. Um, But it may be worth mentioning why Pakistan was not a subject of this book, and that is because Pakistan actually offers one of the few examples of a country that is bandwagoning with China that has foregone all elements of balancing for full-blown engagement, as much engagement with China as is possible. Now, there have been some troubles lately about the CPEC corridor and some questions about the costs of engagement with China and the costs of the Belt and Road Initiative, the monetary and non-monetary costs. Um, But that is a separate discussion, one entirely divorced from the India Uh, Pakistan issues in Kashmir. You two are welcome to discuss that on the sidelines after the event.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, My name is Satoru Nagao, the Hudson Institute. My question is, uh, Malaysia and Singapore's perception towards the role of India in the security in the Indo-Pacific. Why I ask the question is, because uh, India trains the Air Force in Malaysia, and the uh, Singapore Army and, and the Air Force uh, permanently stay in the India to use the training facility. The, because uh, to keep maintain the equipment, the, they need to use the facility, and so that is the reason permanently they stay on some of the force. So under such kind of situation, Malaysia and Singapore focusing on the role of India, I think. But you haven't mentioned so, so deeply, so... I want to know some of the opinion from you. Thank you.
4: So your, your question is, uh, how do how does Singapore and Malaysia um, cooperate? Uh, if you don't mind me starting. Uh, so I, I don't know a whole lot about Singapore's relationship with India per se. Um, As I mentioned, Singapore is a little reticent to join the free and open indo Pacific and the Quad, uh, supporting any coalition of larger powers uh, perceived as uh, containing China, perhaps. Um, But Singapore has also been very welcoming of India's presence in East Asia and Southeast Asia. Singapore was one of the uh, major proponents of India's inclusion in the East Asia Summit in 2005. Um, And the joint military training agreement that I mentioned, um, India and Singapore signed in 2007. And they've only uh, enhanced strategic cooperation since then, signing a strategic partnership in 2012 and reaffirming that in January last year. Uh, So I think the relationship is very positive and uh, trusting, especially as India and Singapore have expanded their Simbex exercises this coming week uh, with more ships than have ever been uh, taken part in this exercise before, I see a positive trend line for the relationship going forward.
3: Yeah, uh, just just quickly on Malaysia, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is one of Malaysia's key partnerships and relationships. And I think I, I give the uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the Indian government a lot of credit, actually, to very quickly engage the new government. Um, I remember before I was attending the Shangri-La Dialogue, um, he made a very quick visit. To, he was supposed to go to Indonesia. He made a quick visit to Malaysia and not only met with Prime Minister Mahathir Mohammed, he also met with Anwar Ibrahim with, I think, the key recognition that if he is the future Prime Minister, India should sustain that level of engagement uh, with Malaysia. And India has had a long uh, history of even defense cooperation with uh, Malaysia, including uh, you know one of Malaysia's problematic uh, services in terms of military capabilities is Air Force. And the uh, defense minister recently... Uh, Mentioned in uh, to Parliament that um, you know most of Malaysia's aircraft can't even take off and they're not really very operational. Well, India has a, has a role in terms of helping Malaysia train uh, some of its military personnel as well. So there's a lot of quiet cooperation uh, that's going on between Malaysia and India, and that's very important. I think linking it back to Jeff's point and uh, ASEAN and Southeast Asia and the Quad. It's actually really interesting. I mean, if you look at ASEAN and Southeast Asian countries and how they engage with the Quad, I I do agree there might be some skepticism and ambivalence there. But if you look at what these countries are doing individually with each of those countries, I think it's unmistakably clear that on all those countries, the relationships have improved tremendously Mm -hmm. over the past even three years, four years, five years. And so maybe the conception of the Quad as a format, we should kind of revisit how we're looking at Southeast Asia's alignments with these powers, because if it is, as Jeff says, a balance among the powers, sometimes these countries will engage them individually, even if it isn't the exact configuration that we're looking for.
2: Thank you very much to my esteemed authors and co-panelists, and thank you all for coming out today. It really was a a rich discussion. Um, kicked off by, by Chairman Yoho and some robust remarks, and then a sort of tour de force through the Indo-Pacific. Um, so this was this was really great. Uh, thank you all again for coming out. You can uh, find the book on Amazon, and there are copies uh, for sale out, outside our event. Thank you.